0: Welcome to another episode of Mirpa Taste Buds. We are your buds, Melissa. And Emily. And Mirpa Taste Buds is a podcast all about food, our lives, and how they intersect.
1: Had <laughs> <I'd> to <laughs> think about that one, didn't you?
0: <laughs> it's been a while since I've like said the full intro.
1: It has been. Uh, it's so hard to get to these full length episodes. We're just so busy.
0: <laughs> I tell you, yeah, life is craziness. I can't believe it's freaking October. Here we are.
1: Mm-hmm. but isn't it terrifying that people say that life only speeds up more and more it's like it can't get any more sped up than this
0: like right. i'll die isn't it, i'll explode at, oh yeah 100 percent. and that's like actually true isn't it like because that time actually does, is getting shorter or something like that no
1: stop saying that oh my god oh wow
0: <laughs> i think it's like tiniest tiniest fractions of amounts but uh yeah it, days really are shorter than they were <laughs> Uh but that's not at all what this episode's about. Yeah, so Yeah, let's pull back
1: from the doom and gloom. Hi. We're talk about, about it.
0: food. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, most of the time. This episode is all about native foods, which I'm excited to talk about because there are many that I don't think I really know about and I don't think most people know about. I, I know that I know of one that is like iconic for native yeah. peoples in in the Americas, but Mm -hmm. Uh other than that, I think that there's a lot that people don't know about Native communities, and it's important to shed the light on on those communities. So
1: Yeah, in honor of Native American Heritage Month, which is in November, we want to dedicate this episode to the indigenous Americans that were the first peoples on this land. So one of my favorite podcasts, Wild and Sublime, always opens with this intro. Where she says, I am on the unceded lands of the Council of Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and the Potawatomi Nations, in addition to many other tribal nations that were a part of the Midwest. And it's a Chicago-based podcast, and I always just love that they throw that little bit of, like, appreciation out there for the fact that we are all on Native lands, because they were the first people in America before Mm -hmm. colonization.
0: (laughs) Keep that in mind.
1: Yeah, keeping that in mind. It's just I love when they always open with that and then they'll they'll ask their guest what lands they're seated on. And it's always just kind of cool to just give that little bit of appreciation and recognition where it is due. So originally we were actually thinking of an episode that was going to be a small bites in particular on the topic of fry bread, which quickly spiraled into so many other topics that we knew it deserved like a full-length episode so here we are
0: <laughs> Hell yeah so let's get cooking
1: yeah let's get cooking i haven't said that in so long right oh, it's been a minute yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So Navajo Fried Red originated 144 years ago when the United States forced Indians living in Arizona to make the 300-mile journey known as the Long Walk.
1: And the Long Walk makes it sound a lot less horrible and is kind of a gross understatement in my mind. So the U.S. military actually marched... Navajo men, women, and children between 250 to 450 miles, depending on the route they took, and forcibly removed more than 10,000 people to a reservation.
0: Insane. I feel like you don't even hear about the long walk. Like, so much of my history, I think, focused on the Trail of Tears, but I don't mm-hmm. ever remember really hearing like the long walk of the Navajo. Correct. So crazy. They were relocated quote-unquote, to New Mexico onto land that couldn't easily support their traditional staples of vegetables and beans. To prevent the indigenous populations from starving, the government gave them canned goods as well as white flour, processed sugar, and lard, which are the makings of fry bread.
1: So it's now kind of considered a pan-Indian food that's nearly ubiquitous across all of the recognized tribes, and fry bread's not indigenous to Native American cuisine. So instead, it really traces its origins to these internment camps that arose from the forced displacement of tribes in the mid-1800s. In
0: 1864, during this long walk, the federal government of the United States rounded up Navajo people and forced them to march south from their homeland in northern Arizona, or Four Corners area, to eastern Mexico at... Bosque Redondo. Hundreds of people died each day and even more succumbed during their encampment.
1: So hundreds of miles away from what was familiar to them and where they were used to foraging and hunting and growing crops, they basically started to starve. So the government decided to issue them rations of flour, salt, and lard, which they started to kind of cobble together into recipes, which this is where fry bread kind of comes from is this sort of survival mechanism when they were in these internment camps which is interesting because in 1868 there was a treaty that allowed them to return home so on june 18th they the once like scattered kind of people kind of started this trek back for the long walk home and it's weird because it's like one of the few instances where like the government permitted a tribe to return there to their like traditional boundaries but i also did not fully really research that and i feel like there's probably some like caveats and untruths and half-truths to to all of that because the government doesn't give you anything good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean you know that it was not like the true lands that they had, I'm sure. It's so much f- further restricted and, and I'm sure, like you said, definitely a lot of like caveats and loopholes. In exactly, and agreement. like I
1: wasn't sure where the source that I was reading some of the stuff was coming from because one of them was like they get, got all this acreage back and they, they managed to double that or something and I was like, did they though? I was like, I don't, I can't trust this source I need to yeah. hear it from like a native person Person to be
0: able to be like okay <laughs> yeah val- validated <laughs> yes but what is fry bread really like because man it's really something it's fried dough like an unsweetened funnel cake but thicker and softer and full of air and bubbles and reservoirs of like grease Ugh, it makes me excited just thinking about it but it is a re- 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 veered by some as a symbol of native pride and unity uh obviously because it's so amazing
1: <laughs> yeah it's unfortunate too cuz it has like both these like positives and negatives it's one of those things yeah. that just like you can't just look at it from like the surface so <laughs> Although it is like a cultural unifier, it's also blamed a lot for contributing to high levels of like diabetes and obesity on reservations because one slice of fry bread, which is sometimes as large as a paper plate, has sometimes 700 calories, which 25 grams are from fat sometimes. So yeah, not the most healthy thing, but it's also like it came out of a situation that was like a survival thing. So it's like,
0: you know. Yeah, it's, it's something kind of beautiful out of a terrible time that unfortunately has consequences. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but some Native American chefs today no longer include this dish in the foods they make because of its problematic past, while others have developed restaurants, food trucks, and food stands like, solely around fry bread. Some community members and families have reclaimed fry bread and eat it regularly, while others eat it only at special occasions, and still others no longer eat it at all. It's now a food that almost every Native community knows how to make. Whether they chose to make this um, is kind of up to them.
1: So actually one of the first ways that I ever experienced fry bread was the Indian taco. Um, So Mm -hmm. essentially it's fry bread that sometimes has, like, beans or meat and then, like, cheese, lettuce, and tomato on it. So there's a lot of modern, like, versions of the dish which might feature additional toppings, sometimes, like, avocado or sprouts or microgreens and radishes to kind of, like, give it that, like, more contemporary flair and maybe a little, like, more of, like, a healthy foodie kind of vibe. But I, when I was living in Seattle, there was a food truck that was vending at the... The Olympic Sculpture Park, which is part of the Seattle Art Museum that is right on the Puget Sound. And it was just, it's such a beautiful space in general. It was like a really fun event. And they had a bunch of food trucks that like pulled up like watching over the sunset with the freaking water in the background. And I had never had fry bread. And I like saw this cool native food truck and I was like, okay, I got to have this. So I tried it and it was, it was delicious, of course. But what was the first time that you had fry bread?
0: I don't know what, what the first time was. I know I had it when I was taking a class in college on the health effects in Native communities. Mm. Actually, um, we ate fry bread during that class to kind of just give us a better context of it. Um, oh, that's and cool. we did eat it as like kind of like a taco. There were like all those kind of same fixings and stuff, which was really interesting and fun. And the the teacher of that class was from a Native. Uh, tribe and all that so it was it was a really like special experience for sure very cool there are many other versions of this dish uh, including like a no fry fry bread which is a grilled version of fried bread with only beans and vegetable toppings to make it a healthy alternative the indian taco as well as fry bread is served at many events like powwows fairs gatherings and the famous indian market in santa fe new mexico
1: So when we started talking about this episode and and trying to like research and kind of figure out what other things we wanted to talk about, we were also kind of talking about how Native American cuisine is probably like one of the most misunderstood and underrepresented cuisines in the United States today, which is ironic because these are like the first peoples that settled here and were here. And like, it's just funny that they've kind of been erased from the story. So yeah. And it's like, obviously, it's very rich in, in history and, like, origin and tradition. And it's been developed long before contact with any Europeans. So it's just so wild to kind of to discover these things that have been here all along, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> it's funny that you say it that way, because it's, like, kind of, like, What the colonizers did, you know, they discovered something that was already here. (laughs) So true. So true. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's like actually not being discovered. It's just like real. It's you uncovering it. You know, it's like you you opening your eyes. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now you see what's been happening the entire time before you. So, yeah, it's It's been there.
1: (laughs) It's actually the foundation. It's like the foundation of a lot of the things.
0: I think it amazes me like how many foods I think of as like staples in our culture or staples in, you know, like uh, American foods or whatever you want to call it. Um, Mm -hmm. But those were actually either items that did not originate from the Americas, you know, and were things that were brought here by colonists, or it was things that were native foods originally and brought back to all of those people that came here and repurposed and re you know reimagined into all these different cuisines that we eat today um so it's it's definitely fascinating to think of like how far these foods have traveled and transformed throughout time um and how much we really owe to native populations cultivating those things you know exactly. like making those a reality keeping them in our environment and in our food source and and showing a lot of those colonists that came and the pilgrims and whatnot uh you know how to really utilize and survive in this environment that they were completely foreign to
1: yeah i feel like it's so easy to misspeak in these sort of contexts because <laughs> we are still talking from like uh a history that has been taught to us that was very much so from the colonizer's perspective and Correct. that history has completely tainted the way that like we think and see those things yes. because we just like are taught the appropriate context which is baffling to me that it's still keeping it still continues to go on
0: a hundred percent and like all language in our society it's ever evolving and ever ever changing right like I used to think that Native American is, like, the the proper term versus saying Indian. But now, mm-hmm. like, I would lean more towards saying Native Peoples or First Peoples or Indigenous over saying Native Americans because it was something long before it was America, right? A 100%. Um, so there's just, it's, it's so complex for sure. And, and I'm sure we're misspeaking on a lot of things. <laughs> and and yeah. I, I think that that's okay. Like I'm still learning. We're all still learning. And I think that, like I said, like this is ever evolving and changing. And I think that there just needs to be more people willing to listen, have these conversations, see native people as people that are still living their lives today. You know, I think that we yes. still think of them in such a static past sense in our minds that um, it's, it, it's really toxic because we don't realize the, the effects that we're having on them in the present day.
1: A hundred percent. When we were talking about <laughs> making this episode, there was like so many things where I was feeling concerned and self-conscious about even talking about this topic. I mean, anything that we talk about, I always kind of have that same feeling where I'm like, I don't want to misspeak or misrepresent or act like I'm a a well source of expert on yeah, something, yeah, expert exactly. Yeah. Like I'm just interested in these topics, so I looked into them and researched them, and I want to share it with other people. That's simply how I, I go about it. But with the same thing with like indigenous and first peoples, like I was like researching like what's the most appropriate, and it's like there is no right answer necessarily. Right. You can just try your best. So
0: <laughs> yes,
1: <sighs> but yeah, I think it's so funny that as. Americans, we just have not still acknowledged this history and taught it in schools. How important that indigenous people were to us surviving, even being able to like maintain a foothold in this country, because we had no idea what we were doing when we got here. And we literally would have died without some instruction or watching what they had
0: done <laughs> to even oh figure out how to live. 100%. So, yeah.
1: So, yeah there's definitely too much uh, erasure and definitely the thought of them like being static and not existing in like present day. Cause like it, we, even when you're taught about them in school, I feel like it's sort of from this like historical lens. It's not like, I love how you like what, had a class where you had a teacher that was, and it was literally like an experience that is still yeah. continuing to fall.
0: A hundred percent. And like, I think that the history books really cut off at a certain point. At least mm-hmm. for me, I feel like, you know, it's like you learn about the, the pilgrims and the the thing, first Thanksgiving, and, you know, you may learn about a few maybe battles or something or, like, you know, the how the French interacted with some certain tribes, and you get a smattering, right? But mm-hmm. then it kind of, like, falls off after, you know, 1860 or something like that yeah. you know like when the you know as soon as like trail of tears happens and like, yeah, long we're like walk oh. it's like okay these people are gone let's focus on us moving west and all these other things yeah that and we're then doing. it's like slavery and emancipation and we got other problems with other people right <laughs> and it's like they were still a big they don't they fought yeah. in world world war one and world war two like didn't we just learn mm-hmm. something where it was like crazy numbers of people yeah. native people from reservations were uh, drafted, drafted to be in you know and fight for our our rights and freedoms in world war one and two so like that's yeah. crazy you know and disturbing um,
1: numbers which is like yeah there's just so many yeah it's, it's like <laughs> damn near that. half
0: of all the able-bodied men on a yeah, reservation so exactly
1: how many times can you get uh, one population honestly it's like what
0: yeah. is wrong with this picture and and all the like boarding school stuff and like there's just so much history and it, it extends so much uh, yeah, which it's funny because I feel doing.
1: like a lot of that stuff is coming to light more now and is being oh, talked yeah. about now. So it, it, it's another reason that this episode totally came to mind was because of some of the more of these topics that we just mentioned that we're going to get into a little bit more. So,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Very real. Let's get into it a little deeper here. So Native American cuisine includes indigenous and wild plant and animal ingredients, but it also includes cultivated plant ingredients that are found in various tribes throughout the Americas. There's something that's also called the Magic Eight, which are corn, beans, squash, tomatoes, potatoes, chilies, vanilla, and cacao, which are eight plants Mm. that Native people gave to the world and are now woven into almost every cuisine.
0: And thank the gods for them because those Sincerely. are really like all my favorite things i know when i read that list
1: i was like i could survive on that that's all i yeah, need
0: 100 you got chocolate you got uh-huh. something hot like i'm so yeah. happy yeah a little
1: spice yeah yeah mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Like many cuisines, Native American cuisine is not static. There are four distinct historical periods that actually compromise it. So there's the pre-contact period that dates back approximately 10,000 BC to 1492. And then there's first contact period, which is about 1492 to the 1800s. And then you have the government issue period, which is the middle to late 1800s during that like Native American relocation period. And then finally, you have the new Native American cuisine period, which we're in now.
1: So different d- dishes were introduced during these different periods reflecting Native American foods that already existed in the Americas mixed with foods introduced by Europeans. So in the instance of the government issue period, these foods were usually forcibly introduced and used as more of a matter of survival but they have now become iconic with Native American cuisine. So, obviously, some dishes still include ingredients from the pre contact and the first contact and the government issue, all in the same dish sometimes. So, it's kind of cool to see the blendings of these things and how things have evolved because um, you got to take the good with the bad, baby.
0: Oh, yes. For the first time in U.S. history, Native chefs and restaurateurs and the Native community members can decide for themselves what foods they really want to include on their menus and in their communities. And they offer dishes that highlight and feature the new Native American cuisine. It's a period in cuisine that goes back uh, into the past to decide what ingredients to include into the future, especially when many Native communities are really now focused on a lot of the health and wellness aspects of food.
1: Mm -hmm. so one of the first things that i feel like comes to mind when i think of indigenous cuisine is the three sisters so that's corn beans and squash and these three ancestral native american ingredients are from the pre-contact period and are used by many tribes throughout the united states and considered to be three main agricultural crops in indigenous cuisine so They're often planted together using a technique known as companion planting. So you plant them all three in like the same area and they actually benefit from each other, which is pretty cool. So the corn obviously needs the nitrogen to grow. The beans provide that nitrogen. So the beans need a structure to climb. Since we had talked about beans in that one episode, hopefully you'll listen. But (laughs) the ones that climb, uh, they need like trellising to kind of support themselves and to go up. So they work perfectly as a bean pole, essentially. (laughs) And then the squash has broad leaves that spread over the ground and that provides shade to keep precious moisture in so it doesn't evaporate out of the soil. And it also helps to kind of like block some of the sunlight. So that keeps weeds from taking over down below. So it's really fun because we actually did a planting of that um, on the farm and it was really cool to see it like take over and like really cover the whole bottom gets spread with these like big broad leaves with all the squash I think we did butternut squash underneath it. I can't remember what kind it was. Might have been zucchini. We have so many zucchini. And mm-hmm. uh and then you'd see like the beans just vines and spiraling up and going up and up and up on <laughs> on our lovely corn stalks, which this was last year before all the <laughs> ground squirrels ate all of our corn kernels before they really <laughs> got big. But yeah, it was just really beautiful. And just like knowing that this was like a native practice was super like kind of spiritual in a weird way like i yeah. i mean I don't, I don't know what else kind of takes you it. like
0: back to the beginning back to the earth kind of mentality yeah i
1: mean <laughs> everything in the garden kind of feels that way but to like n- mm-hmm. know that there is an ancestral like tradition and practice in this and that like there is something spiritual about it it was really just like moving kind of in a weird way and uh yeah. when we were at fermentation fest this year one of the spots on the map was, I can't remember what the title was, but it had something to do with sisters. And I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, I wonder, I called it three sisters by mistake. And then when we got there, it was these like really beautiful, um, painted, I don't know how to call them sculptures, maybe a bit, um, hmm. painted effigies. There was three women or three sisters that were all wearing like different like dress and colors that were painted with the squash and one was corn and one was beans and just like seeing it represented standing out there in this like field in Wisconsin was really cool I was like oh man yeah yeah
0: love it yeah it's cool that that has carried on for sure Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it is really an ingenious practice like it works so well so kudos Mm -hmm. to them for figuring it out (laughs) absolutely (laughs) Side note, since we're three sisters, would you say that you are the corn, the beans, or the squash?
1: Oh, my God. That is (laughs) such a tough question.
0: Uh, When
1: we were... (laughs) When we were at Fermentation Fest, my favorite one was the beans one for some reason. I I feel like. For some reason,
0: I thought you were the beans.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I could be the squash, but I don't know. But, like, I guess I'm beans.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like you're the beans. I feel like I'm corn.
1: Your corn? Okay, I can yeah, see it. Yeah, I
0: think I'm corn. Or maybe it. Nicole's corn. I don't know. It's tough. I don't know
1: either. I could see you being squash too. I'm like, oh, I feel no. like Nicole's
0: squash because she's like the big sister, the protector. You know, like
1: yeah, I guess that's real. She
0: provides the shade to for the rest to grow. Kind of a deal.
1: Yeah, keeps the weeds at bay. And I'm
0: corn, and I'm just like there, and I'm sweet, and it's whatever. Giving <laughs> me some support.
1: Yeah, <laughs> try to I try to trying to lift me up all right i see you i see you but yeah we're there <laughs> totally gonna ask nicole next time we're together
0: now right now we gotta know we, we gotta firm this oh, up we've been the citrus sisters for years but there were we three have. sisters all oh along that we could have <laughs> Oh, That's man. our next tattoo. no we gotta get that beans, was
1: exactly <laughs> where my mind went. I was like, new tattoo, new tattoo. Uh,
0: that would be hilarious. <laughs> all right, but it's not the only way that these plants grow that makes them so important to Native Americans. It's also the nutrients that they provide. Corn, beans, and squash contain complex carbohydrates, all nine essential amino acids, as well as essential fatty acids which make them very nutrient-dense when combined. They're used by many Native American chefs in, like, sautés, stews, soups, and they can be found on many Native American cuisine menus.
1: So a particular type of bean that is common in certain cuisines that are kind of like, it's called the superfood of the Sonoran Desert, but it's tapari beets? Tapari? Tapari?
0: Tapari. Tapari? Tapari beans? <laughs> Tapari? I
1: meant to look about to show God damn it. We make it up in, on this pan- really podcast, do. god we damn really it. We say
0: do. what we want.
1: You sound it out. You just do what your second grade teacher. You just sound it out. Tapari. Tapari. So it's a Native American bean that's native to the southwestern United States and Mexico. It's been grown in the region by Native communities for millennia, It's very, like, heat and drought-resistant. It's, like, a small bean that's suited for the desert environment, and it has, like, three distinct types that are white, brown, and black.
0: Hmm. Called Bavi by the Tohono Odlam. These beans are have dense nutrients, high-protein fiber, iron, calcium, the works, <laughs> that really sustain native communities for generations, and some ethnobotanists believe that cultivation of these began approximately 6,000 to 8,000 years ago, so they have been around, mm-hmm. and they're still grown by many tribes today. Very cool. I've honestly never even heard of those beans, too, so... Me either. I was stuff I don't even know about.
1: <laughs> I know. I want to research some more of this stuff. One of the things that interested me when we first started this podcast was just like ancestral foods in general, which I'm sure as an anthropologist mm. is already like something. Love
0: it. That's on your mind. That's
1: <laughs> something thing. that I always look for when we're like searching, even for like recipes to make and things like that. I've been trying to like amass in a, cl- a collection on like Pinterest or in our Instagram, even that I like save to things that kind of feel like um, they either fit my personal heritage or our our ethnicities and, and things like that. But I just think it's very fascinating. Like that, those are the things that kind of, I love things that go back to like, the roots and back to the beginning and back to the origin like that's why I love those like the small bite stuff it's like tracing things back to the beginning as far as you can or as best as you can to kind of understand where those things come from because they seem so commonplace in your everyday life now and it's like this thing literally traveled around the world to get to you and has been cultivated for millions of years it's been used in a bunch of different ways as as medicine as you know poison it's like all these different ways that things are seemingly so simple and it's like no it's it really is so much deeper than the the surface level. So yes, fascinating absolutely. facts. Which this next one was one of those as well. And it's <laughs> a wild rice called Manuman by the Ojibwe, which means good berry. And technically it's not a rice. It's actually like a grain that's harvested from grass that grows in water. And it's interesting because it's an early rice. that rice? <laughs> I know it is. That's what I was like. I we're 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 gonna do a rice episode very soon because I, I have so many questions <laughs> about rice in general. I watched a video of a man like hand harvesting it, and there's someone who kind of just like is the the steerer or the stirrer who's like pushing the boat along, and he's literally just like banging it um, off the tops of the reeds or grasses in, and it's just mm. falling into the boat as they like go by. Um, but it it's been grown for generations and it's it was it's naturally in the lakes of northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Canada. So it's like very much so in our region. And to just see that this is how it's done and like that's how you could you could collect this, it just kinda of blew my mind. <laughs> but yeah. I know and it said it wasn't a rice, I was like why not and then when i watched the video i was like (laughs) it looks like a rice i don't i still don't understand fully (laughs) but it's really (laughs) cool because it boasts like an impressive amount of nutrients including protein magnesium zinc manganese phosphorus and it's been used by many Native american chefs in a variety of dishes there's even ways that they were kind of using it as like medicine and different things like that and they were talking about how you kind of like roast it or or dry it out um and you it can last for months at a time and like be stored for a long time too so gotta find some of that i feel like i've i've heard of this before but i've never actually like seen it or tried it and i want to find some
0: yeah for sure interesting and then of course we have the lovely salmon native american tribes of the northwest revere salmon and many define themselves as salmon people i'm one (sighs) of those Mm-hmm. It, it is a sacred food, and there are five different kinds of wild American salmon in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we've got the king salmon, with this, which is chinook, sockeye or red salmon, coho, which is silver salmon. These are very confusing because I feel like, I don't know, uh, pink, which is humpback salmon, and chum, which is dog salmon, with the most well-known types being the chinook, the sockeye, and the coho.
1: The Chinook, Sockeye, and Coho are the only ones I've heard of. Chum or dog salmon? I was like, what?
0: Dog salmon? I've never heard of in my life. (laughs) Humpback salmon? Never heard. Humpback, yeah. I was like,
1: I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Living in Seattle, it's, like, impossible not to be surrounded by, like, salmon, salmon artwork, salmon effigies, because it is clearly so important to Indigenous people there and is, like, a way of life. So, uh, I feel like recently we were talking about how you can go salmon fishing somewhere near here. And it like blew my mind. Cause like, I just always assumed it was never near us. <laughs> I don't know. So I can't remember where it was, but thought I'll it do... had to
0: be like colder waters or something.
1: I can't remember where it is. Cause it's not like super close, but it wasn't that far, you know, still like within yeah. range. Interesting. Um, yeah, but I don't know what kind that is. Now I'm like, oh, was that the yeah. dog salmon? Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we got by us for sure. Yeah, probably. <laughs> the kind no one wants to eat. <laughs> right. Whatever kind that is. <laughs> <laughs> but cooking freshly wild caught salmon on cedar logs or planks over burning coals has its roots in Northwestern Native American culture. So many communities in the Northwest smoke their salmon as part of curing process to preserve salmon for future use, which smoked salmon is amazing. Even like, I've, yeah, I've had so many different versions and I love it. So cedar planks are available commercially and it's a common practice to cook salmon on soaked cedar planks with a variety of seasonings, which again, that's like something that, I didn't obviously com- immediately think like, oh, of course, this is an indigenous practice, but that makes total sense.
0: <laughs> yeah, hundred uh, percent.
1: Chefs didn't just come up with this recently. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've always wanted to do that too, like Me cook too. something on a cedar plank. Never done it. <laughs> Me either.
1: I know I've I've wanted to get one for a while. Maybe I'll put that on my Christmas list. <laughs> Can you just like reuse it? I think so. Right.
0: Oh, okay. I don't know. I thought it was like a one-and-done thing, but... No,
1: because you soak it so it doesn't like... it's not like it burns up. I don't know. I guess the juices would get... I don't know. Yeah, wouldn't
0: like the flavors kind of seep into it, though, and then like stay?
1: Well, I don't even know. Well, I I want one. I gotta find (laughs) out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I gotta do more research. (laughs) Yeah, sincerely. Unfortunately, there's a lot of health effects on the Native community because of their history and past, so as we've kind of mentioned with the opening of the Western frontier, this triggered all sorts of motion within our country and forced many settlers to move West, um, into what was traditionally indigenous country and Congress initiated the federal, federal Indian removal act of 1830, which evicted more than a hundred thousand native Americans East of the Mississippi river, um, into different portions of the country and completely disrupted their native food ways and their traditional food sources. Many died on those long walks to the reservations that we had discussed earlier, um, because their food sources were intentionally burned or, um, they would kind of be left with nothing for these walks and then forcing them to relocate to these strange places that they didn't really have anything, um, During these forced relocations, like we had mentioned, there was a lot of rations that were given to people, but they were not really nutritious foods. It was lard, flour, coffee, sugar, canned meats. Um, Spam was a really big thing that was a part of those rations. Um, And all of those really became known as, uh, you know, part of their food system at this point. Um, But, you know, all of those things are obviously not nutritious and were linked to a lot of adverse health effects most notably diabetes um that's really kind of like uh, a major thing that triggered
1: and supposedly the original intention of the u.s government was to supply rations as an interim solution until relocated air quotes native people were raising enough food on their own but instead many indigenous people became dependent on the rations which I don't even like the way that phrasing kind of sounds because it's like you literally ripped everything away from these people. Yeah, put they them had in, no choice. In, yeah, you put them in inhospitable lands too where it's like you didn't give them the best cream of the crop farmland. You didn't give them a lot of things to work with or resources. Even even if you gave them land, was there water to water the crops with? It's like, yeah, so...
0: They did everything to set them up for failure for sure. Correct. And I think... correct. Um, you know, I I do probably think that they imagined it would be an interim solution and like we're not gonna have rations forever, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But like there I just don't think there was a, a forethought at all about what the long term solution is about Absolutely. relocating massive amounts of people, completely mm-hmm. uprooting their lives, ruining their, you know, cultural systems, their ecosystems, all of these things. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no uh, thought as to like how this would sustainably be able to continue, you know?
1: Correct. So basically, they're forced to kind of abandon their traditional food procurement practices because it's not sustainable in these new environments, and they just don't have the resources to continue with them. Or they tried, and it wasn't working out. And then they found that there essentially wasn't enough government issued food to feed all of their tribal members, and it just became like a struggle, just flat
0: out. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah. And then there was obviously a lot of forced assimilation in the boarding schools that happened, and many of those, like, traditional customs that people had um, were no longer getting passed down to, you know, new generations. So it was harder to maintain food customs and traditions and um the boarding schools are just like a whole issue in and of themselves. I mean, there was so much trauma inflicted in that period. It like still boggles my mind, the atrocities that happened. Um, You know, children suffered from severe malnutrition. They were emotionally, sexually, and physically abused. Um, you know, the mortality rate was around 20%, like, literally I'm in sure the first initial it years.
1: was worse than that, too, which is I'm haunting. That's just,
0: like, report. We're still finding, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, remains and things like that. And, and there's new stories all the time about, um, you know, children being found and stuff like that. But, yeah, like, t- 10 out of 49 kids dying in the initial year or something of, of one of these boarding schools in particular, like, that's insane. You know, yeah. there should... First of all, the number should be 0. But the number the fact should that be it's 0. Like a high number at all is insane.
1: I don't think I really had heard about this until May. I think like probably like the last 3 or so years maybe because a bunch of news stories just started coming out about it. And I feel like there was a really big one in Canada that came out mm-hmm. about finding like a mass grave. And it just like starts like, like hundreds a, of was, children, I think. Yes. It, it was just disturbing. The numbers were... yeah. And, and when I read that article immediately, like the comments and the backlash was also just like, well, America did this too, you know, like basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And then a bunch more stories started pouring out about places and where these atrocities were just like kind of coming to light slash being like full-blown exposed. So, I mean, it's a definite like reckoning that our society has to deal with, that we literally treat people worse than we would treat anything else.
0: Yeah, I mean, we didn't really see them as human. It was literally the phrase was kill the Indian, save the man. That was like the slogan of those boarding schools and the assimilation practices that they were doing. And, you know, like indigenous women were sterilized and like crazy things. Just like, I can't even imagine that happening, you know, Um, and that happening today, even though I know that that does still happen today (laughs) in disturbing ways, you know, but yeah, it's, it's a terrible time in our history for sure. And, Again, I think it's totally brushed under the rug, like you're saying. Like It was fairly recent that I feel like I heard about a lot of those things. A, a lot of the news stories that came out, I definitely heard about it in some classes i took in college but i don't remember hearing about it any earlier than that in my life which is just insane well it's like
1: how you kind of said how the teachings and things kind of cut off after the 18 mid-1800s in school and you never really hear about anything else it's because we weren't doing anything good
0: (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah so that is exactly right Mm -hmm. but obviously extracting these children from their indigenous food systems It essentially creates individuals that are completely void of an understanding of their land, their environment, political systems, education systems, spiritual systems. So there's no understanding of collective resource management. That was like a a quote that I found, and I found that like so on the money, you know, it's like you're completely stripping them of their culture and what's left at that point, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's honestly
1: like one of the saddest parts it's just so sad to hear like that you would mm-hmm. actively try to just destroy everything that made that person who they are and just like, yeah, just erase.
0: And for what, you know? Yeah. Just like, that because slightly. they didn't believe what you believed. They didn't, yeah. you know, like it all mm-hmm. came down to God to some weird yeah, degree. Some, and that's and, like, so like so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> it's
1: so twisted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so
0: twisted. Like if that's a, I don't know, whatever, but yeah uh today native americans still face threats from federal and state governments related to land use like uh, they reduce you know the lands where they can hunt and fish and gather and preserve their own food which is still so messed up you know it's like what is the problem with any of those things there's those aren't harming the ecosystem and the environment and whatever so to limit and further restrict these people after everything is just mind-boggling
1: Supposedly one out of every four indigenous people experience food insecurity compared to one in nine Americans overall. So I was actually just listening to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And yes, I listen to the podcast for him, I don't watch the show.
0: <laughs> but
1: he had a group on called Ghetto Gastro, and they talked a little bit about food apartheid and conscious cuisine and accountable calories and stealth health and high vibrational food. and they said some quote about how we break bread to build bridges. And it just reminded me a lot about this fact that minorities in general are constantly sort of experiencing this food insecurity. And it is such a strange form of like warfare in a way that is just Mm, seems mm -hmm. so unfair and just so unfortunate. And we really like have to take care of our own and there has to be these programs and nonprofits and people that really push for like change and try to build these structures and communities within their communities so that people have places to go to get good, healthy food.
0: <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. It's, uh really unfortunate that we can't rely on our government to provide more support in that regard um a lot of the articles that I was reading too like were distinguishing between food security and food sovereignty because food security is like m- more so about making sure that you have access to food and like healthy food. Versus food sovereignty is about making it a sustainable, like, environmentally conscious, uh, culturally respectful and responsible way to um, maintain food ways, basically, for a community. Mm. Um, and I just thought that was, like, a very interesting distinction is, like, there's so much more in food sovereignty than yeah. just making sure that you have access to something, you know.
1: That's incredibly powerful. I don't think I really understood the difference between those two terms either. Because I've been hearing them a lot, exactly. obviously, with like the things that we are into and, and listen to and, and absorb. So to hear it yeah, defined absolutely crucial.
0: Again, it's all that language that's constantly evolving and changing, right? You know, I always mm-hmm. used to hear food deserts and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I feel like it was Urban Harvest, maybe even, that kind of said like, you know, food desert makes it sound like it's a natural thing. Versus yeah. like this is a man-made occurrence, you know, Correct. this is entirely something that our society has built and perpetuated. And so by calling mm-hmm. it a food desert, you're you're kind of taking away uh, from the reality that this is something that is our doing. There's
1: accountability and responsibility that's being taken away right. from that situation that is completely inexcusable.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, so I think they said like the term should be like food genocide or like something much more like, uh, man-made, which I thought was interesting, but yeah, certainly interesting terms here. And I think like the food sovereignty thing totally goes back to your claim of like it, it being community driven and having to have those individuals that are, uh, you know, kind of the boots on the ground and, and trying to find new inventive ways to, uh, make, food not only accessible, but sustainable for their communities. But, of course, the poor (laughs) Native communities just can't catch a break because, like everybody in our world today, they got hit hard with COVID. Um, A recent study did say that the um, Native American tribes in Northern California, Southern Oregon region, uh, revealed that 92% of the households had a lack of access to enough food or good, like, healthy and culturally appropriate food. And uh, a large issue that is, they're really facing is that there's a lack of access to full-service grocery stores and that not wow. all stores allo- allow you to use, like, federally funded programs like SNAP to buy your food. Um And the lack of full service grocery stores actually comes from the fact that a lot of grocery store retailers don't want to put their stores in these poverty stricken rural reservation areas, which is messed up. And additionally, there's also like an expansive startup cost to opening a locally owned grocery store where the funds just like really aren't there, you know,
1: that is. So upsetting. Ninety-two percent is disturbing statistic. <laughs> in any, whenever you hear like anything, anything in that range, it almost sounds fake because it sounds so absurd.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I, was, I was literally reading something that said like in an area that spanned like the size of m- multiple states, like three, uh, pick three East Coast states, and in that amount of area, there was only like eleven grocery stores. Whereas, like, if you were to go to a a less poverty stricken area, you would see closer to like 45. Wow. So, like, that's a a drastic difference in in access, you know, and there's just, you're never going to be able to to combat that that gap. I mean,
1: we've lived on the west side in Chicago, and you are in areas where there is not much. I mean, there's just just neighborhoods that are completely unserved, And, and even in St. Louis, when we were there and when you're there now like there are areas that are completely unserved
0: you got nothing, nothing. or nothing. the grocery stores that you go into are chips yes you chips, know? frozen food it, it, there's pop. really terrible produce selection if mm-hmm. any at all yeah um, there's no organics yeah. like
1: nothing yeah yeah
0: it's crazy
1: So due to limited income, employment, and resources, this is why many Native American families choose to stock up on cheap bulk food things that have longer shelf lives instead of buying fresh food. We see people do it all the time um, Mm. when they're in situations where they're strapped for cash. So it's just what happens. You cut the stuff that's fresh and healthy, and you just go for the stuff that's cheap and easy. So um, healthy and nutritious foods tend to be more expensive as always, um, as well as on reservations. So due to supply chain issues, environmental racism, and already inflated prices for food, nearly all foods tend to cost more on the reservations. Compared to nationwide rates, on average, a loaf of bread costs $0.66 more, and a pound of ground beef or apples costs $0.84 more, and a pound of tomatoes is $0.63 more. But a bag of Cheetos averages $0.63 cheaper than the national rate.
0: Like, so, how messed up is that? It's we will insane. feed you
1: this poison. We will give you the poison. We'll give it to you for cheap. You can get two for the price of one.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much, you know? <sighs> Ugh, it hurts. It hurts. It's like, it just feels so intentional once you, like, know this information, you yeah. know? it's like
1: and that nothing's being done. You feel like nothing's being done.
0: Yeah, yeah you're setting people up for failure, you know? Mm-hmm. You, you want to keep these people poor. You want to keep them sick. You want, you yeah. know, you're perpetuating this cycle yeah. of oppression and it's like for what to for correct money for like this correct. that's so yeah. messed up it is so messed up <laughs> Just hmm. will never get over it.
1: I swear we're gonna get out of the dark stuff soon.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. We're creeping. We're creeping. We yeah, are. We are. There's gonna. Be but happy we're gonna set. go down a little bit. Yeah, more down still. the rabbit hole. <laughs>
1: we're trying to spur you um, into action, folks.
0: <laughs> exactly. There's gonna be lots of links for you to. I found some really cool organizations and stuff that you should all support for uh Indigenous Month. Oh, that's so amazing. we'll definitely be sharing that as well. But. These are the reasons why you got to to care, you know I mean mm-hmm. it these people need help, and uh it's long overdue, frankly, so yeah, we should all <laughs> want to do
1: better also, so
0: yes, a hundred percent we got to lift each other up that's right, but because poverty rates are so high on reservations, access to preparing healthy food is also a lot harder. a lot of places might lack electricity or running water um so that's another kind of barrier for them with unhealthy options being so widely available it's really no surprise that like for native americans or alaska native adults they're 50% more likely to be obese than like non-hispanic white people um native peoples are also twice as likely to v- develop diabetes than an- the average american is so things are just like stacking against mm-hmm.
1: them i mean There's just so much like trauma and poverty. So that's also just a breeding ground for alcoholism, higher smoking rates, which also is linked with serious illnesses like depression, cancer, liver and kidney failure. So Tribes utilize many federally funded programs like SNAP to combat food insecurity. But the recent COVID-19 pandemic illuminated gaps in federal feeding systems and many tribes began looking for additional assistance from sources such as the Emergency Food Assistance assistance program as well.
0: Yeah. During COVID-19, Native Americans experienced higher case rates and more severe disease and death than any other group in America, which I don't think is that surprising knowing that, you know, they're already facing such severe chronic illnesses and stuff like that. That's going to put them in that more highly targeted group, um, but definitely saw a rise in cases for them. But like we said, on a positive note, there are good things happening. You know, among Native Americans, there is a strong desire for this, like, strengthened global governments of Native lands and stewardship of cultural practices to increase access to those traditional foods, Um, as well as they want to strengthen skills and self-reliance, including support for home food production. So that's like a big new wave that's kind of happening. They're trying to find ways to... Um, you know, provide their own food. Native peoples are are kind of better suited to identify and help and implement those solutions. So a lot of tribe led workshops on native food gathering and preparation and preservation are starting to happen. Uh, they're also trying to remove a lot of legal barriers that block block them from hunting, fishing, gathering and are working to restore traditional rights for all of those ancestral lands to do that. Um, there's also a lot of people providing culturally relevant education and employment opportunities to tribal members, and to support Native food sovereignty, federal and state programs should really be looking to focus their efforts on you know addressing those regulatory barriers and increase funding uh for the purchase of those traditional locally sourced foods so that they could get back to more of the things that were so beneficial to them in the beginning you know
1: yeah i feel like wasn't it just a few years ago even that the first indigenous women were like elected to congress or something too so it's just yeah great to see that there's more representation uh, out there at least to kind of speak for, for these people
0: Yeah, It's definitely an upswing. I think we Mm -hmm. need a lot more forward momentum for sure, but (laughs) um, it it is so refreshing to see those faces. And, and, uh, you know, I was reading an article about like a woman who when she was a child was told, like, she said she wanted to be a doctor and Someone told her, like, oh, you should maybe be, like, a dental hygienist or, like, something else oh, that was rude. not a doctor. <laughs> and she ignored them and was a doctor anyway. <laughs> yes. um, but I think, like, that that's what we need. You know, we need more people, uh, you know, educating themselves, giving back to their communities, um, and just doing the amazing work that a lot of them are doing. I feel like there's a huge resurgence in like the young native communities mm. i don't know if it's just like i don't know a weird tiktok trend or something but like <laughs> the old pretty much the only tiktok thing i follow is like the native tiktok thing where there's just like a huge community on there where it's native peoples in traditional dress in, you know doing dances yeah. doing you know cooking their traditional foods and it's just like really cool to see because i feel like for so long, they've just been pushed to the back burner and, like, mm-hmm. not in the, the you know, the forefront. Um, and we've kind of, like, forgotten about them. And now it's like, wait, these people are here. They have come to slay, and I'm here yes. for every minute of it. And, you know, like, one of my favorite shows lately is uh, Reservation Dogs, and, yes. like, that show's great <laughs> and has so much, like, good Native res- representation and stuff like that, so um I feel like you're starting to see them more in just like social media and uh Mm -hmm. Hollywood and all these different things that are coming out so it's it's pretty awesome
1: yeah that is very very true it's powerful and it's nice (laughs) also remember Mm -hmm. to get out and vote I'm not sure when this episode will air but uh we got some elections to vote in so don't sit on the sidelines, folks
0: <laughs> Accurate.
1: So there's also a lot of really great contemporary Native American chefs that are kind of popping off nowadays. So um, a lot of them are all over the United States are creating dishes that use ingredients from all different periods and ancestral paths. So and the, from the indigenous Americas. So there's a lot of cool ingredients that are specific to certain regions, like those temporary beans we talked about and that wild rice, the minumen, and all these cool grains and things like that. So I think you kind of have to keep your eyes peeled for places that are doing it and chefs that are using those ingredients from different regions and things like that. But it's really great to see them bring awareness and like diversity to, to cooking. <laughs> yeah (laughs) and to see like a contemporary representation in some cases or like twists or like fusions i love seeing how people kind of mash up cultures and like and evolve and take things to the next level for instance for Mm -hmm. instance that uh ghetto gastro i of course immediately had to go to their instagram and they have a really cool cookbook that is coming out and There was a cornbread dish in there that was like so elevated and cool looking that I was like, oh man, it made me want to get the cookbook. I was like, I I think I've made enough cornbread in my life, but now I want to get a cookbook to try this bougie recipe that was like super fun and like inventive. So one of them, uh, or there's a couple of them that when I was researching, were listing a lot of men. And I immediately Mm -hmm. had to go and start to find some women ones because I found it very strange that a society that tends to have a lot of like matriarchal tendencies would not highlight more women chefs. But I forget also that oddly male chefs sort of dominate the scene normally. So
0: Mm.
1: I had to kind of be reminded to like check my feminist ass at the door. Correct. It is kind of a strange thing since women's place has always been in the kitchen. (laughs) that we wouldn't be more represented in this group um, as head chefs in particular and things like that. But, I mean, the tides are changing and things are always ever-evolving, but Mm -hmm. it was interesting to kind of see that was kind of skewed again more towards the male side when I first researched, at least. (laughs) They're out there. You just got to find them.
0: (laughs) You just got to find them, yeah. I definitely Mm -hmm. want to track down some like either native chefs or restaurants or whatever the case might be because i i don't think i've ever eaten at like a restaurant that's specifically native foods in any way like that i'm actually kind of Uh, upset
1: that when we traveled to new mexico on our like little sister trip we did a few years ago that that was not something that I had thought to kind of like seek out. Cause I feel like there's one of the chefs or maybe one or two of them on this list that were kind of in that region. And I was like, Oh shoot, we could have gotten to like maybe yeah. one of the restaurants, but. For it's definitely sure. Something I to imagine that mind.
0: area would have a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'm definitely gonna have my eyes peeled now. So <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> uh, but one of the chefs to keep an eye out for is Walter Whitewater He's from the Navajo Nation and was one of the first prominent Native American chefs in the U.S. and thus serves as a major role model for many young younger Native American cooks. Uh, he is a chef at Red Mesa Cuisine, which is a Native American catering company in Sa- Santa Fe, New Mexico. And they serve ancestral Native American cuisine with a modern twist and provides food trainings using ancestral foods for health and wellness, which that sounds so fun. I would love to do a training like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Red Mesa's Cuisine's mission is to bring Native American cuisine into the temporary Southwest kitchen and to help sustain traditional foods, agricultural practices, support local Native farms and food producers, and keep alive ancestral culinary techniques from native communities. So all amazing things.
1: Yeah, say all the good things. They're doing it all. (laughs) (laughs) There is a chef named Tanya Bryant, who is a Mohawk nation chef who works closely, worked closely with her mother at uh, Mohawk Seed Keeper's Garden. And it was really like her love for like traditional foods and growing that kind of Propelled her, I think, into food and wanting to be a chef. So she kind of married those two things together and started a company in 2014 serving her community doing catering and then of course it was super popular and it grew into a restaurant and I love that she does like small batch cooking and like new daily menus but she's also offers her menu in the Mohawk language which I, th- I thought was really cool um some of these cool. native languages are kind of like disappearing in some cases so any chance you can get to kind of like keep it out there make people look at it read it speak it is like very exciting so
0: yeah there's also Freddy Bitsoy. I don't know how yeah. you say that. Uh, <laughs> as an it's executive chef at the National Museum of the American Indians, uh, Mitsam Cafe in Washington, D.C., Freddie is from the Navajo Nation as well and has created dishes that showcase regions throughout the Americas, including Northern Woodlands, Mesoamerica, South America, Northwest Coast, and the Great Plains. So that's pretty cool. It's cool to, like, I don't know, get a full swath of places mm-hmm. because those are like such vastly different quizzes yeah. it is pretty cool uh,
1: to dabble in like all of them and pull them all together and kind of like mishmash and then like yeah, that'd be a really cool one to see just like the different variety of dishes, yes,
0: I would still give you some like history. such commonalities, <laughs> you know, I feel like corn oh, yeah. is a commonality in all of those places, regardless <laughs> there's definitely
1: some threads. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, he is one of the few Native American chefs at the forefront of preparing, presenting, and educating about foods indigenous to the Americas on a large scale.
1: Yeah, I feel like I'd have probably a lot of questions on that menu, and I'd want to know like the history of everything. So oh you better have God. like you better have like a booklet to go with it or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a full experience for sure. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just imagining like the at the art museums and they have like the audio tour. It's like there's like a little like thing you can scan, and it just like tells you all about it. <laughs> that's what i need an interactive like, menu
0: <laughs> it sounds like a really cool museum too like i would love to go to that museum i in thought DC. the
1: same thing when i read that i was like ooh, bookmark that one for the future
0: <laughs> yeah it's been so long since i've done like any of the museums in dc so that's a necessary trip in the future they are
1: they're legendary i do they're,
0: i remember them being them. quite epic for sure mm-hmm.
1: yeah i spent a good couple hours and then the last time i was there and it was overwhelming how much stuff they really have and i think a lot of them yeah. are free aren't they a lot of those i think so yeah because
0: yeah. that's a, a, we're the second uh, city with like the most free things after washington dc so <laughs>
1: naturally <laughs> amazing so hillel Echohawk is Pawnee and Athabaskan. She was born and raised in the interior of Alaska and in a matriarchal society. She's the chief's daughter and also her mother was involved with um, activism. So already she's going to be a powerful lady right there. But she grew up watching the indigenous people fight for food sovereignty. There's that word. As well as seeing her mother strive to make healthy home-cooked meals for her and her six siblings. So she really had a lot of unique perspective and, and things that really affected her that were related around diet and wellness. So she had a strong passion for local, ethically sourced, and sustainable foods. So she really tries to look at things through that kind of lens and dedicates a lot of her work to food sovereignty and Native peoples and is committed to empowering all Indigenous people by increasing knowledge and access to traditional diets and foods. So one thing it said about her was that she really (laughs) – believes that food feeds not only the body, but the spirit. So obviously that's something that we strongly believe in here. And she's also been working as a cook in a lot of Seattle's restaurants, which I thought was pretty cool, and as a private chef, but also doing Native nonprofits and Native community work, which is pretty cool. So, And she does stuff with pre-colonial and Indigenous kind of foods, which is really neat.
0: Sean Sherman is another chef that we get who's an Oglala Sioux chief. I'm sorry, Oglala Sioux chef. It's hard.
1: It's funny because it sounds like Sioux chef, like S O U N. Yeah, but it's Sioux, like the
0: tribe. Yes. Yeah, that's (laughs) tricky, tricky. Um, They founded the, the Indigenous Food Education Business and Is a caterer of the Sioux Chef as well as the nonprofit North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. He also created the Indigenous Food Lab focused on Indigenous culinary education and Indigenous food access. He's currently working on launching a new Native American restaurant in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
1: I was gonna say, we could travel to Minneapolis. I'm sure there's one closer, but
0: (laughs) I wouldn't mind traveling. I do want to go to Alaska kinda and see that Alaska ladies like because oh that sounds interesting and very different too.
1: We actually are trying to make an Alaska trip happen, so that's another it's a good point. Yeah, I talked that.
0: about going on Alaskan cruise with Alyssa. <laughs>
1: really? Oh my god, we should all do it. Yeah. That'd be really
0: fun. I mean it'd be so fun. That's the yeah. only kind of cruise I ever want to do.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't know why that's like the one, because it's like, seems like that would not be for most people, but that's the one.
0: <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it's interesting because the next person actually is, it looks like also is from that Red Mesa cuisine. So it's funny that they didn't mention her in that other article. They're like, let's just mention the man. But Lois <laughs> Ellen Frank is also a renowned Native American chef, food historian, educator, author, and photographer. My kind of lady. Yeah, I actually found this lady and immediately thought of you because she has a Ph.D. in culinary anthropology and a Master of Arts in cultural anthropology, her own catering company, the Red Mesa Cuisine, and a cookbook that won a James Beard Award, people.
0: She's doing it all. Yeah, Yeah, she's own it. I love it.
1: Yeah, for real. So one of the other ones we want to just mention today, I mean, there's so many different ones, honestly, if you do some searches for Native chefs, a lot of different ones come up. These were just some ones that were doing some really cool stuff that seemed like it was really community-focused and really giving back and focused on the traditional things, but I'm sure there's more out there. So... The last one I'm going to mention today is Brian Yazzie and he's from the Navajo Nation and he's actually a new executive chef at Gatherings Cafe at the Minneapolis American Indian Center in Minnesota and he serves traditional meals as well as feeds elders and Minneapolis Native American hey. community members and I was just like my heart people you got Well,
0: yeah. yeah. You're just adorable, You're adorable already off the bat.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean honestly I'm really glad that we researched this because it kind of reset my mind and it's been a little while since I've thought about the ancestral and traditional and just like going back to the roots and the bare bones of American cooking. I think the last time we really talked about this is when we talked about black history month and African-American cooking. And
0: yeah, there's so much like similarities. Mm -hmm. I feel like to me that it just gives you all the feels for sure. Like that ancestral Mm -hmm. cooking like that and like mm-hmm. oral traditions and things getting passed down to generations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So
1: it just brought it kind of home again and just made me refocus and recenter. And I think I've just been like finding the joy in like using a lot of simple ingredients from my garden and, and watching things grow. And there's something about the pace of life right now that is just so fast and never slowing down. And mm-hmm when you go out and watch something grow there's some there's a level of patience that you just have to have with nature and you have to let things take its course and it just kind of reminds you that like you are a blip on the radar in the universe and at the end of the day you need to just breathe in what brings you joy and let the negative shit go so i just want to take a moment to cheers we're i think we're ready
0: (laughs) yeah hell yeah
1: yeah so this year we want to cheers to all the amazing talents that continue to come out of America's First Peoples and to getting back to our roots let's grow and appreciate Native cuisines and plants and don't forget to thank Mother Earth because it is not possible without her friends
0: Ain't that the truth? Definitely want to give a good reminder to everyone to take those small actions every day to combat food apartheid wherever Mm -hmm. you are. I think it's a a massive problem in throughout our country. So Mm -hmm. uh, we can't all have the luxury to choose, you know, the most organic, sustainable local options. So definitely appreciate those blessings of abundance that we all know and love Mm -hmm. and yeah, like we said, deserts are naturally occurring, but problem these problems are really systemic and man-made, so let's call it what it is. <laughs>
1: Correct. And don't forget to volunteer, so when you can, because there are so many amazing chefs and organizations that are doing great work to feed healthy, nutrient dense, and delicious options to their communities in need. So get involved if you can, folks
0: yeah check out all those sh- amazing chefs do it do it yes. do it
1: and don't forget to check our instagram and our link tree because we're going to share some organizations and places you can find to support and happy native american heritage month woo! Woo,
0: woo, woo. <laughs> so we didn't bad. have to do the bear, bear, bear.